You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is Premium Episode 7, FBI vs. PTK Part 3, The Wayne Williams Innocence Project. Today I'm recording from Zone 4 in Atlanta, Georgia. To start today, allow me to quote from three mothers of some of the victims of the Atlanta child murders. I have never believed Wayne Williams killed not only Yusuf. I don't believe Wayne Williams killed anybody. Camille Bell, mother of the victim Yusuf Bell. Camille Bell also said, Wayne's just one of those people who doesn't look right to other people. That doesn't mean he killed anybody. Camille Bell also said, Do you know who Wayne Williams looks like? He looks like me. She also said, It had to stop, and to make it stop, they scapegoated somebody, put him in jail, and called an end to it. Willie Mae Mathis, the mother of victim Jeffrey Mathis, said, I don't believe he did it any more than I'd go out there and shoot somebody myself. Eunice Jones, the mother of of victim Clifford Jones, said, Wayne Williams ain't doing no time for killing my child. He ain't doing no time for killing nary a child. As a side note, I'm reading the quote as it's written. I'm not applying accents or ebonics here on my own account. And, to be fair, Helen Pugh, another mother of a victim, said, Just look at him. He looks like he did it. Referring to Wayne Williams. I know he did it. She also says, I don't know if he killed all of them, but I believe he killed my boy. I sure do. It's safe to say that more mothers of the victims doubted Wayne Williams' guilt than believed him to be the murderer of their children. But, to understand why this would be the case, we need to get into who Wayne Williams was. Also, as a side note before we get into it, I went back and forth on the title of the episode, The Wayne Williams Innocence Project, Initially it was a joke, then I was sort of questioning if it was in good taste. Then I sort of came around to the idea that he might actually be innocent of the child murders at least. Um, All of this to say that I don't consider any of this a joke. But let's get into it. So Wayne Williams was not arrested after the bridge incident, right? Where he was said to have dumped a body possibly because this incident didn't happen. But after the bridge incident, a curious thing happened. Wayne Williams was publicly identified as the suspect, which again is not what you would call good investigative procedure, is it? This caused a a two-and-a-half-week-long media circus, partially because there was more or less no evidence tying Wayne Williams to any of these murders. It was This period of time, when Wayne Williams drove to the safety commissioner Lee Brown's home and started honking his horn, causing a scene. Wayne Williams very publicly argued and told everyone he could that he was not the murderer. And to be clear, this is not really what serial killers do. But then again, nothing about the Atlanta child murders was normal. The local district attorney did not want to bring charges against Wayne Williams, at least not until the case was stronger, but APD... Atlanta Police Department, State Police, and the FBI all reportedly wanted to pin everything on Wayne Williams. For what it's worth, Wayne Williams did not bear even a passing resemblance 
to any of the witness descriptions or composite sketches created by the task force. Wayne Williams was called the Atlanta child murderer, including in the press, but he was put on trial for the murder of two adults, Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Payne. Two men who he might have actually killed. I am not sure on that point. But, get this, Wayne Williams was not charged for any of the child murders, but evidence of the child murders was allowed into court. The judge allowed testimony for ten other killings. Now, a Georgia Supreme Court Justice, George Smith, was outraged by this and said later that Wayne Williams was in an unenviable position as a defendant who was charged with two murders, but forced to defend himself against 12 separate killings. You might even say that this would be a cause for a retrial or something, you know? Except for the political pressure, of course. To quote Dave McGowan again, the state's case was built almost entirely on highly suspect fiber evidence. That evidence, purportedly the strongest element of the prosecution's presentation, had seemingly been planted to provide the state with some semblance of a case. It was claimed, for example, that fibers on Williams' car was found on one victim who had disappeared before Williams had even purchased the car. It was claimed that Clifford Jones' body yielded fibers linking him to Williams, though all other available evidence indicated that Jones had in fact been killed at a laundromat by James Brooks, some other person. Another very curious fact about the trial is that one of the two men whom Williams was formally accused of killing, this is Jimmy Ray Payne, he was not even initially considered a murder suspect. The cause of death listed on his death certificate was undetermined. Recognizing, however, that a homicide prosecution requires an actual homicide victim, the state later had his death certificate altered. And the cops generally want to encourage things to not be murder. They generally aren't on the side of putting their finger on the scale for <laughs> coroners calling things murder that they don't want to solve. So when cops do that, there's clearly a game happening, right? Cops don't want to get murder cases. Now, Wayne Williams' defense attorneys were already arguably guilty of malpractice before they even went to trial in not requesting a change of venue. Like, they didn't even ask for one. I mean, think about it. How could you possibly successfully defend your client from charges of being the Atlanta child murderer in a trial conducted in Atlanta? It's absurd. And in a curious behavior that we see over and over again in serial killer trials, the defense team allowed Wayne Williams to take the stand in his own defense. Again, this is never recommended for a case like this. Even worse, his lawyers told him to be combative. Like, hey, look at my lawyers telling me to be combative on the stage. I'm going to jail. Ha ha ha. Reportedly, Wayne Williams' testimony went pretty far in convincing the jury about an otherwise very weak case. Like, say what you will about Wayne Williams. He was a weird dude, and, like, there was clearly something up with him, right? Very curiously, the 
prosecution pushed the line that Wayne Williams had a split personality. More on that later as well. So on February 27, 1982, Wayne Williams was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder of two adult men, no children. But who was Wayne Williams? Wayne Williams was just 23 when the murders in the investigation was occurring. And he already had such a packed and interesting life that it perhaps suggests some things. So, Williams had an early interest in radio and journalism. Before he was 16, he constructed his own carrier current radio station. In fact, it looks like his parents might have literally bankrupted themselves spending money on this hobby. I think I saw a quote from his dad that was like, I will literally spend all my money to keep him safe off the streets. Kind of ironic and sad in retrospect. Wayne Williams started hanging out at the local radio stations WIGO and WAOK. He befriended many of the radio crew. Chet Detlinger even calls Wayne Williams a broadcasting prodigy, which does not sound inaccurate to me when we go through all of his career. Like, Agent Douglas says he was trying to break into radio, but like, no, he was, he had already broken into radio. Agent Douglas mentioned that Williams was arrested for impersonating a police officer when he was 18, showing the typical serial killer behavior of being attracted to law enforcement, but often too unstable to go into it. Chet Detlinger, the investigator and author of the book The List, he said that neighbors of the Williams household said that after the alleged bridge incident when Wayne Williams was said to have dumped a body, Wayne Williams and his father went to clean their house, and they carried out boxes into their station wagon and burned photographs and negatives in the outdoor grill in their yard. Notice. Agent Douglas says Wayne Williams burned photos. I think the TV show depicts just him burning photos, but neighbors say him and his father were burning photos. Given the other pedophile and child porn connections in this case, I think it is a safe assumption to speculate on the type of pictures that they were burning. And if his dad was helping, why that just raises even more questions, right? During the media circus, before he was arrested, Wayne Williams held a press conference where he wrote and delivered a five-page typewritten resume which he handed out to reporters. It's true that he wasn't acting like a serial killer, but he wasn't exactly acting like a normal person either, right? In this resume, he describes himself as in good health, 5 foot 7, 160 pounds, an honors student in high school, interested in various sports, reading, flying, photography, astronomy, music, semi-pro auto racing. As a side note, interested in flying, Man, I would love to know if he ever got involved in the Civil Air Patrol, an interest in rifle marksmanship, and, quote, heavily involved with various media, unquote. The resume added that he attended Georgia State University in Atlanta, but did not mention that he dropped out after just one year. During this period of time, he lived with his parents, Homer and Faye Williams, in Atlanta. Again, I think there's... I think Agent Douglas and Mindhunter sort of imply that 
Wayne Williams was a loser for living with his parents, but of course he was only 23 years old. It's not really that crazy. It has been pretty well documented that Wayne Williams was a homosexual, though for what it's worth, he vehemently denied it. And again, Agent Douglas seems unconcerned either way. So, Wayne Williams often went to car wrecks, fires, and other breaking events to get footage, and had success selling them to local and network television. This is crazy. He's 23 years old. He's already making these connections, selling footage. Editors reportedly said that his work was quick but not polished, but that he was improving. He was the very first person to arrive at the wreck of an airplane crash in 1977, putting him on the map, so to speak, for selling footage to the news. He was described as a scanner freak, which is to say monitoring police radio frequencies, partially for his work and partially, you know, if he was like some kind of predator, right? One newsman said of Wayne Williams, he seemed to be a fickle kid, but he was smart, a genius. He had old mannerisms. Here's a curious connection. Wayne Williams' parents both came from Columbus, a medium-sized town in southwest Georgia. They still had family there and would visit quite a bit. It's in Columbus where Wayne Williams purchased radio equipment one time from the radio station WCLS. The thing about Columbus, Georgia, is that it's across the Chattahoochee River from Phoenix City. Phoenix City was called the Sin City of the South. It was a haven for organized crime, prostitution, and gambling. There's even a whole movie about it, The Phoenix City Story, 1955, starring John McIntyre, Richard Kiley, and Catherine Grant. The reason why Phoenix City was such a den of sin was because it was near the U.S. Army's Fort Benning, an infantry training base that contained, among lots of other things, the notorious School of the Americas, which is now called the even more euphemistic WINSEC, Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. The School of the Americas was a training camp for Latin American security forces, many of whom went on to carry out genocidal actions, extrajudicial killings, coups, rape, and torture. Many death squads were trained by the School of the Americas. Curiously, Columbus, Georgia was subject to a series of stranglings in 1977 to 1978. The similarities between the stranglings in Columbus and Atlanta were not lost on people. Let's talk about the porn connection. Wayne Williams managed a musical group, Gemini, which also happened to be his astrological sign. You know, the sign of a dual nature. And also, that's crazy. He was managing a musical group when he was 23. Like, I mean, not to like tell on myself too much, but like I wasn't doing anything when I was 23. Like, I don't know, like, so all of this is to suggest that Wayne Williams was not really as much of a loser. He wasn't unsuccessful or unconnected as he seemed, or as Agent Douglas said, right? There's a police report showing that Wayne Williams would take Gemini, his musical group, he would take them to the Apogee recording studio. Can I just say, Apogee, defined as the highest point in the development of something, a climax or culmination. Very interesting, perhaps telling, 
name for a recording studio. And I'm not trying to be too like bong rip here. Like let's let's talk about the recording studio and see if it might make more sense. The Apogee recording studio was called by some people posh, complete with grand pianos, a jacuzzi whirlpool, and a sauna. Other than recording there sometimes, Wayne Williams reportedly worked there part-time. The whole studio was owned by a man named Mike Thevis, who is quite the figure. He went from altar boy, I'm looking at an article here about him, there's so much to him. He went from being an altar boy to running a $100 million pornography empire. People have credibly called him the Scarface of porn. So Wayne Williams knew the Scarface of porn. Sometime after Wayne Williams was arrested for the Atlanta child murders, the Apogee studio was vandalized. It was smashed up and certain recordings were destroyed. Was that related? You can guess what I think. Then there's the matter of Wayne Williams' political connections. The black political machine was still growing in Atlanta in the 1970s, and Wayne Williams knew an extraordinary number of politicians public officials, and members of the media. Not unlike John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy, actually, come to think of it. A man named Hoseo Williams, the famous civil rights leader and colleague of Martin Luther King Jr., he had a radio show on WIGO on Sundays. Guess who was his sound engineer? Wayne Williams. So no, I don't think Wayne Williams was trying to break into radio, right? And when Wayne Williams was arrested, Hoseo Williams no relation as far as I can tell, said that he would try to get Wayne Williams' top lawyer named Howard Moore. Howard Moore was the counsel for Angela Davis. Hosea Williams also said that he would try to get either Howard Moore or William Kunstler, who was the counsel for the Chicago 7. Ultimately, neither of these lawyers represented Wayne Williams, but the lawyers that Wayne Williams did get were very interesting. Even though they probably torpedoed his case by having him testify and by not even trying to change the venue, on paper these were very good lawyers. His main defense lawyer was a high-profile lawyer named Tony Axum, who was the partner at the firm of David Franklin. David Franklin was the political strategist for the Democratic machine in Atlanta, who also represented Richard Pryor, Gladys Knight, a bunch of other black celebrities less famous than those two, right? There's so much to Wayne Williams and the Atlanta child murders, like sheer volume of information type of thing. Like, I'm having to cut down on information left and right just to keep it tight and coherent, not out of any consideration of time or anything. Just know that I am cutting a bunch of information so that we can get to the really good stuff. Let's go stare at the abyss for a minute. Good morning, how you doing? When we returned to prison for our final interview with Wayne Williams, we had one question he was not expecting. What Wayne had written about being recruited for espionage training as a teenager. At a secret government camp hidden in the woods near this North Georgia lake, where he was given what could amount to a license to kill. It's called Finding Myself. What's Finding Myself? It reads like an autobiography. Go ahead, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to see what you're saying. It's a 
account of your CIA training? We're not going to get into that. Why not? We're not going to get into that. I got a copy of it. Yeah, but we're not going to get into that. Why not? We're just simply not going to get into that. By his account, Wayne Williams was fresh out of high school, just 18 years old, when he was initiated into a secret world. So I'll do the talking part, and you can answer what part of it you want. You write how you fired rifles, submachine guns, handled assault weapons, grenade launchers, C4, learned uh, unarmed combat techniques through this training group over weekends. Is it, is it true or is it false? We're not going to comment on that. When you're 19 years old. You're saying you work for the CIA. You've been recruited. I'll let the document speak for itself. I'm not going to comment on that. Copyright 1992 by Wayne Williams. Is this an autobiography? I cannot comment on that. Were you trained in unarmed combat techniques? Could you grab somebody bigger than yourself, put them in a chokehold? Because that's what that is. I'm sure there are other things in unarmed combat besides putting somebody in a chokehold. Well, when I talk to the military experts and I say to them, what exactly does that mean? That's one of the things on their list. Top two things, by the way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that. So are you trained in I mean, that I mean, or not? Let me, let me say this. Let's just say that I had some experiences that I do not want to comment on today for reasons that the document says, okay? The fact is, what does that have to do with the situation today? Everything. You tell me. It what? has everything to do with it. A, a big part of the conversation when I talked to your lawyers was, could Wayne Williams grab somebody? Did he have the strength? Look how... He's not a big guy. Could no, he? Could I, I he? Could saying. he grab someone in a unarmed combat technique and kill them? It's actually a very simple question. Can you kill someone with a chokehold? And when you were you 19 years could. old, <laughs> you probably could. Under the right I know for a fact I could not. I know uh, for a, I know you're being facetious, but I know for I know, a fact I, know what you're I could not. You don't, you don't know. But uh, were you trained as a teenager to do that? Because that's what you're writing in this. All and I, 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 I get CIA. You don't want to talk about it. It's all off the record. Let, let, let me state this for the record. Okay. Um, I think in the paper that you have, and I, I will say this, that it says that there was contact with a certain program. And I will say it was the joint officer, excuse me, junior officer training program, which was run by a certain agency, and you're correct, CIA. But I never said that I worked them. I simply said now who's splitting hairs? that I were had you trained, some contact were you with trained, some person, and that's all I'm going to say. Were you trained that's all in these say. techniques? That's all I'm going to say. Okay, let's take a minute here. So, Wayne Williams, in prison, wrote an autobiography called Finding Myself, where he discusses his CIA training. Wayne says he was approached by an associate of an old World War II spy in the Atlanta area and was brought into a secret world. He says he was given paramilitary training in a camp near Atlanta and that this training included unarmed combat techniques. It's hard to disprove the existence of anything secret or covert, right? But if you were a rational person, you would maybe inquire, was there any sort of camp near Atlanta, right? 
Whew. Good thing nothing like that exists, right? 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 But of course there was. And who is the spy we're talking about? Mitch Werbel III, a.k.a. Mr. Whispering Death, who was an OSS veteran who lived in Atlanta. Let's run down some quick facts. Werbel was the son of a Tsarist cavalry officer in the Imperial Army of Russia. He joined the OSS and served in China, Burma, and Indochina. During his time in the OSS, he served with Paul Hallowell, along with E. Howard Hunt, Lucien Conine, John K. Singlob, and Ray Klein. Mitch Werbel III developed suppressors for firearms. He invented the first machine gun silencer. He also helped invent the Mac-10 submachine gun, which is basically only good for committing crimes. It was the gun of choice for cocaine dealers. Later, Werbel was security advisor to Bautista in Cuba and Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. Which, I mean, bad job on that, right? Unless, you know, that's not the point. Werbel helped plan out an invasion of Haiti against Papa Doc Duvalier. He was involved in all kinds of other Caribbean intrigues. He got into the micro-nations thing, which is like a far-right and libertarian obsession, and he would go on to provide security training for London LaRouche's U.S. Labor Party and LaRouche's cult. Werbel had ties to the Galen organization, to drug trafficking, to the JFK assassination, to the attempted assassination of Larry Flint, to the Cotton Club murders, and to many rumors I don't even have time to unpack. Like, I can't even emphasize this enough, Mitch Werbel III was one of those rare types, a CIA contractor who is actually also doing the drug trafficking himself. Like, he was closer to the drug trafficking than almost every other actual CIA-connected person. In fact, there was a whole DEA case that pretty much had him dead to rights, but the case was thrown out. The case linked him to a bunch of murders and to Teamster intrigue, which of course, Lyndon LaRouche also links up to some of the same intrigue. When Lyndon LaRouche commissioned the book Dope, Inc., which is one of my favorite books of all time, right? I'm only partially being ironic. The book Dope Inc. is about how the drug trade works, including being run by the Queen. <laughs> Only somewhat joking yet again. Much of the background and deep research came from Mitch Werbel III and some of his associates. Now, I would love to do an episode on Mitch Werbel III one day. Not to vague post or anything, but I have heard other conspiracy theory adjacent podcasts rush past Mitch Werbel III, not our good friends at Subliminal Jihad, not anyone I've guested with, but certain prominent conspiracy theory podcasts really brushed over Werbel's history in relation to some of the topics I just talked about. Anyway, maybe I'll cut this part. Not trying to start beef or anything. Relevant to our discussion, Mitch Werbel III at a training facility called the Camp, and or Camp Cobre, where he ran the Cobre International Counterterrorism Training School on his 66-acre estate near Powder Springs, Georgia. 
It was called The Farm in homage to the CIA training camp at Camp Peary in Virginia, also called The Farm. Werbel was a Liberty Lobby member and close friend of Willis Carto, which is to say he was both a raving anti-communist and a fascist, or at least so far right as to render such distinctions unimportant. In the 1970s, Werbel was also hanging out with Nazi KKK Grand Dragon Roy Frankhauser, as well as the Bethel Baptist Church bomber and attorney for James Earl Ray the lawyer named J.B. Stone. He was also hanging out with CIA mercenary and arms trafficker Jerry Patrick Hemming. I'm particularly fond of a quote that Jerry Hemming made when he was arrested in the 70s for transferring a silencer and for drug smuggling. Jerry Hemming said, All of a sudden they're accusing me of conspiracy to import marijuana and cocaine. Hey, what about all the other things I've been into for the past 15 years? Let's talk about them. Let's talk about the Martin Luther King thing. Let's talk about Don Freed, the Couvre, N-word killers in bed with the Mafia, the Mafia in bed with the FBI, and the goddamn CIA in bed with all of them. Let's talk about all the people I dirtied up for them over the years. Now... He was later convicted of importing kilos and kilos of marijuana, sentenced to six months in prison. <laughs> and he went on to keep talking, saying a lot of very, very interesting things. Jerry Patrick Hemming would also merit his own episode, I think. So, there is so much going on in this network, but the point, the main takeaway point, is that in 1977, when Wayne Williams was 19 years old, and at the age he said he received this paramilitary training. The LaRouche people from the National Caucus of Labor Committees were there in Atlanta at Mitch Warbell III's camp, receiving the same exact type of paramilitary training. So were some far-right racist terrorists. But like, why? Why were the Atlanta child murders happening? I don't have the answers. I don't know how many people Wayne Williams killed, if he killed any, but I believe he was a patsy for the child murders. And I believe some of the children were killed by the pedophile networks that we talked about last episode. However, there are aspects of this whole thing that also perhaps point to a specific campaign to wage terror on Atlanta's black community, and or of some occult significance probably going hand in hand with it. For what it's worth, this isn't speculation on my part. A woman named Shirley McGill came forward and claimed this to be the case. And a quote from Program to Kill here to get us closer to wrapping up. Another motive was identified by a witness named Shirley McGill, whose story was made public by Roy Innes, head of the Congress of Racial Equality which had assisted in an independent investigation into the murders. McGill, a Miami cocktail waitress, claimed that the murders were perpetrated by a cult involved in drug trafficking, child pornography, and Satanism. The cult, she said, was composed of members in both Georgia and Florida. One of the leaders was her part-time lover, Vietnam veteran Parnell Traham. She claimed that she had witnessed both animal and human sacrifices, and she spoke of business murders that the cult had committed. Wayne Williams was identified as a member of the cult, 
whom she had seen filming rituals but not participating in the ritual homicides. McGill claimed to be a bookkeeper for the cult's drug trafficking operations, which involved purchasing used cars in Miami, packing them with drugs, and delivering them to Atlanta and to Houston. She also said that the ring had police protection and that at least one funeral home was complicit in disposing of bodies. They delivered this story to the press in April 1981 and was, not surprisingly, greeted with skepticism and derision. They commissioned a battery of tests to gauge her veracity. McGill passed two polygraph examinations, repeated her story under hypnosis, and was declared sane by examining psychiatrists. She was also able to lead investigators to remote sites that had clearly been used for the performance of rituals. A few months before the attempt to publicize McGill's story, the police had received an anonymous call that had led them to an abandoned home in southwest Atlanta. Neighbors that were questioned reported strange comings and goings at odd hours. Investigators reported being sickened by an odor like decaying flesh, though no bodies were found. Detectives did find children's clothing along with an axe, a hatchet, and two Bibles nailed to a wall, both open to passages on human sacrifice. Professor Carl Raschke has written that in the neighborhoods where the killings occurred, a number of children have told police about satanic sex abuse in which they insist they were compelled to drink both animal and human blood. Some months after McGill came forward, searchers stumbled upon a ritual site littered with the carcasses of slaughtered animals. Prominent features of the site included a stone altar stained with blood and a 12-foot-high charred cross. It is not inconceivable that the killings were performed as human sacrifices. Some reports hold that several of the parents reported to independent investigators that the bodies of their children had crosses carved into their foreheads and chests. It is also not inconceivable that the ritual killings were recorded as snuff films." Unquote. Now, kind of freaks me out when I think about 21 Savage with a cross tattooed on his forehead, although I know that's a different thing. But you remember that Wayne Williams owned a German Shepherd, which is a dog breed that appears over and over again with the Process Church of the Final Judgment and its spin-offs. German Shepherds also figure prominently in the Son of Sam killings and other curious cases. Let's walk back off the edge here. Maybe Wayne Williams just heard some stories and concocted a tall tale to get some attention in prison. But you have to admit, he completely breaks the serial killer typology. I mean, like, who starts as a prolific child killer and then finishes killing adults? It makes no sense. Between the pedophile network, Wayne Williams' claim of CIA training, and the actual paramilitary camp run by Mitch Werbel III, and the occult elements, I think that at a minimum we've deflated the Mindhunter narrative of the Atlanta child murders. If we don't want to walk immediately into the abyss, I don't think it's too crazy to agree that, at a minimum, Wayne Williams was probably a convenient patsy to wrap up an extremely high-profile investigation and I've laid out more than enough to get me in trouble, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Sources today included Program to Kill, The Politics of Serial Murder, Mindhunter Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, The List by Chet Detlinger, The Soledad O'Brien Interview, as well as the book 
Lyndon LaRouche and the New American Fascism. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Just let people know about the show. I think this one in particular is particularly bombastic, and I think that it'll probably get some attention, so just let people know about it. Either way, I will see you next episode, and God bless. Bye.